Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them all across London. To attend one of our live shows, go to sparklondon.com. Hello! <laughs> howdy, howdy, howdy. Thank you so much. Hello, London! Wow, I'll tell you, when, when I got here, when I arrived at the Hackney today, I was like, my job is done. I, I, I managed the tube stations, and I'm here. I, I, how many of you do know the podcast? <laughs> Everyone raises their hands. You guys are very well educated. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such a thrill. This is actually the first time we'll be doing Risk outside of the United States. I'm going to kick us off. Our theme for tonight is surprise, because that always works for good stories, right? And what I usually do when I bring Risk to a city for the very first time is I break out the very first story that was ever told on Risk. This is the story that got me thinking... Where the hell can I tell that story? I guess I should just create a show where it would be okay to talk about that sort of thing. This starts when I am about, gosh, ooh, 19, 20 years old. I'm new to New York City. And, you know, I was raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is one of those parts of America where it's not like homosexuality doesn't exist. It's like sexuality doesn't exist. It was a very, very conservative place. So by the time I got to New York at the age of 18 to go to NYU, I was a very horny kid. But I was so terrified of the whole thing of converse, well, cruising, really. I was so scared, so filled with social anxiety about men competing with men for men that I tended to be a wallflower at the bars. I tended to kind of, you know, shrink away into the corner. So one night, I'm at this place called the Boiler Room in the East Village. And this is a bar where all the gay guys from NYU used to go. And I'm saying to a friend as I'm drinking a beer, you know, I really want to get laid tonight, but I don't want to have to start a conversation. And he said, oh my God, you're in luck. Because right across the street 
there's this brand new place. If you go across the street, there's this little alleyway there, and it's kind of in shadows, and it looks like, oh no, <laughs> it's a dangerous little place to go into. But there is a doorway there, and if you shove that door open, looks like you're going into an abandoned building, but there are people in there. You shove it open, you go down one flight of stairs, and another flight of stairs, and another flight of stairs, and at the very bottom is a little guy. And if you give him $10, he'll let you in. And it's a sex club in there. And here's the thing. It's all dudes getting with dudes. But the best part is they're all guys from NYU because they tend to come over from this very bar. So you don't have to worry so much about running into a lot of guys who look like Santa Claus in assless chaps. <laughs> Or who look like me today. <laughs> so I said, oh my God, what am I waiting for? That's perfect. I'll just go over there. So I run right over and it's exactly like he said. Shadowy place. The doorway looks like, oh my gosh, is this safe? I push it open. It creaks open. I go down one flight of stairs and another flight of stairs and another flight of stairs. There's the little dude. I give him my $10, and he lets me in, and I'm immediately enveloped in smoke and haze. You could smoke in New York City in those days. And I realize as I'm walking around that it's actually a maze. It's a labyrinth, right? You go all through these snaking hallways, and... In every hallway, there are these little doorways to closet-sized rooms. And in every doorway is a guy standing there. And if you like him, you give him a little bit of a nod. And if he likes you, he nods back. And then you go into his little room and you have a grand old time. But here's the thing. I had so much social anxiety. I just didn't know how I felt about my own body and how I felt about my own sex appeal or whatever. So a guy who felt like me at that time could end up walking around and around and around that labyrinth, getting a lot of exercise at 4 o'clock in the morning. Well, I was also a student at NYU at the time, and I was in film studies, right? The week before, our professor had shown us a film called Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. And he had said to us, guys, there is so much to get out of this movie. It's one of the ten greatest films ever made. Well, here's what I got out of the movie. Throughout the second half, the main samurai, played by Toshiro Mifune was wearing pretty much nothing but a diaper. And he looked great. I loved that guy. I spent the whole week prior just walking around with samurais on my mind. So now I'm walking around the labyrinth, walking around and around, and I come by this little room, and it looks like it's empty. And I poke my head in and see into the shadows. Oh, no, there is someone back in there. And I look closer, and I see it's this fierce pair of Asian eyes. And I look a little bit closer, and I see he's got a ponytail sticking straight up like a samurai. I thought, oh, my God, if he doesn't run a sword through me, I just hit the jackpot. 
So he gives me a nod and I give him a nod and I begin to jump right there into his little room when I think to myself, wait a minute, Kevin. You've never done anything like this before. You don't know the protocol, the etiquette. What is the safest way to handle this? What is the sanest and wisest thing to say to start this interaction? So I found myself just kind of blurting out, let's go back to my place. So we go up one flight of stairs and another flight of stairs and another flight of stairs, and then we're in the lamplight, and then I can see, oh, no, this is no samurai. This guy had a big beaky nose, and he was real scrawny, and he had kind of this, like, shivery, sniffly thing going on, like he might be on something. And I thought, oh, gosh, I, I don't know how to get out of this. I mean, I'm from Ohio. I don't know how to be impolite like that. What am I going to say? Oh, I forgot I have a, an appointment with the nighttime dentist. No. I just found myself saying, what's your name? And he said, ham. I said, ham? He said, no, ham. I said, ham. He said, no, ham. He was not a chipper guy. I thought, geez, Kevin, the last thing you should be doing is taking this guy home with you. So we get back to my place. And as we're walking in, I'm thinking to myself, okay, now is the time to turn on the Miles Davis and light some candles. But as Ham closes the door behind him, he goes into command mode. He takes me by surprise. He says, stand over there. I said, excuse me? He said, stand over there. I thought, oh my God, maybe this is this thing I've heard about that they call dominance and submission. It might be that in the, you know, the, uh, the whole realm of improvisation, I'm supposed to yes and his ideas here and just go with the flow. And, you know, I am from Ohio. I don't know how to be impolite, so I went with the flow. I stood over there. He looked at me for a second, and then he said, Take off your clothes. I said, Ham, do you think we could keep it down a little bit? He said, take off your clothes. So I took off all my clothes. And in the process, I'm thinking, look, Kevin, maybe, maybe this will be a transformational night for you. You know, maybe this will be the night that if you really do go with the flow, you see the light. You have a eureka moment and appreciate the true joy of dominance and submission. So I took off all my clothes. He studied me a little bit longer, and then he really laid it on me. He said, tie the shoes to your balls. <laughs> I said, excuse me? He said, tie the shoes to your balls. He's acting like, how did this guy get this far in life without learning how to tie his shoes to his balls? Well, he had to show me exactly what it was he meant. He meant he wanted me to take the laces of my converses and tie them together 
like you would if you were going to throw those shoes over a telephone wire or something like that. And take this contraption, like a propeller, and kind of wrap it around my balls so that the shoes would end up sort of dangling at my shins. Well, at this point, I'm so curious as to what the fuck might happen next that I did what he said. Well, I realized very quickly that I was feeling rather pinchy down there, right? I'm standing kind of bow-legged, and, you know, I wear size 11, and I had the, the heaviest arch supports money could buy in those shoes, because you know what? Converse are not good for your feet. But they're even worse for your balls. <laughs> So I'm standing there all bow-legged, pinchy feeling, and I thought, all right, Ham, let's get to the next part of the play as quickly as possible. And that's when he takes his pants down. He's still on the other side. He hasn't left the doorway. And he takes his pants down, and he starts whacking off like a little madman. He gets all red in the face and sweating, and he's whacking off so fast that I think, Oh, well, this might be over quickly because he is the world's fastest masturbator. But no. Remember, I think he might have been on something. So it just went on and on and on. And I'm standing there and I've got nothing to do. So I thought uh, I should start to try a conversation. I said, Ham. Uh, what do you think you might want to do next? And he got really pissed off at me. He yelled at me. He said, what's your problem? You look great. (laughs) I don't know. I might be some sort of fashion statement at some point. So I let him go on and on and on. Then I thought, no, why don't I suggest, hey, Ham, do you think maybe we could take this into the bedroom? He's like, oh, you got a real problem. You know that? You look great. He kept coming at me with the same damn argument. And this argument just escalated. I started getting angry at him and arguing with him. He kept coming back at me with the same idea. Finally, I thought, you know what? It's time for me to be a little bit dominant here. I walked toward him. I took what clothes he had left on the floor there, and I threw him out in the hallway. Well, Ham was so dejected. It was like I had taken the wind out of his sails, you know? I had just totally blown his big shoes-on-balls plans for the evening. (laughs) He went out, he got his jacket and all, and started putting himself back together. And now he was kind of like a politician on election day just trying to get that one point across one last time even though it's futile he was like you don't think you got a problem I mean you really do look great and I was like well thanks so much Ham but it kind of wasn't working for me and so I saw him out the door but I had picked up a full-length mirror off the ground on Ludlow Street that day and brought it in and totally forgotten about it. So when I closed that door and I turned around, for the first time, I saw myself there, completely nude, except for my shoes. (laughs) And I thought, you know, Ham might have been psychotic, but he had one thing right. I look great. (laughs) Now, 
as that, like I said, that was the very first story that was ever told at a Risk show. And over time, Risk, the podcast, has kind of developed. Uh, It's really the audience writing into us, making suggestions, people actually saying, hey, I'd like to tell a story on the show. It's really been more so the audience coming in to pitch stuff to us that's changed the show more so than, you know, some of the more famous comedians or whatever that have been on it. And at a certain point, people started to dare me to do things. And I met this guy once, and he said to me, Hey, Kevin, I'm going to this kink camp in a few weeks. You should come along. I said, Oh, a kink camp? I mean, I, uh, I know I've told stories about sexual stuff on the podcast before, but I still really don't know anything about dominance and submission and sadomasochism and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Kevin... Take a risk. So I went along with this guy to this kink camp, and that became the episode called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And it kind of transformed me and transformed what risk is about. I became a real adventurer at that point and started sharing stories about it. And I became a complete and total pervert. But at one point that weekend, I was in this very interesting situation. I was blindfolded, and I was tied to this St. Andrew's cross, and the man who was doing things to me kind of looked like Santa Claus in assless chaps. (laughs) And at one point, I felt something kind of pinchy happening downstairs, but I couldn't see what it was. And he came in and whispered into my ear, You know what I just did to you, boy? I said, No, sir. He said, I just tied my Doc Martens to your balls. (laughs) I thought, Holy shit! First, my balls must have some sort of magnetism toward footwear. But also... Doc Martens? I have come a long way. (laughs) So let's just hope the next time it's not snow skis. Thank you very much. The first person I want to bring up to the stage, uh, I'm thrilled to finally have met him face-to-face and to bring him up here. Uh, We've been communicating for the longest time over email. Uh, He is one of the hosts of Spark London. Uh, He does Spark on the second Monday of of every month, I suppose. Uh, He also has a show called Stand Up tragedy at the Blackheart in Camden, and uh, as someone has told me, he is himself the Taj Mahal of tragedy. Please welcome to the stage, Dave Pickering! So uh, ever since I was a teenager, I've felt ugly. 
Um, I don't know if it was because of the things that happened at home uh, in my childhood where, you know, my stepdad hit me and my mum sort of uh, said various different cliches that also hurt, you know, like you've ruined Christmas or I wish I'd never had you or uh, men are to blame for everything in the world, particularly you and uh, yeah big stuff that made me feel like bad about myself there or if it was uh what happened to me at school which uh when I was 12 I changed schools and went to to Cardiff and uh, I was a an English boy in Cardiff with a difficult home life and so I was picked on and uh, I became a kind of bullied person within the whole school like I they had a nickname for me which was Melvin and everywhere I went down the corridors it would be Melvin Melvin uh you know people spitting on me kicking me uh calling me Melvin everywhere I went girls saying Melvin so ugly uh boys saying you're gay uh Melvin and uh, kind of Melvin became almost synonymous with gay and uh ugly uh when when I heard that word that's how I felt about myself um it was pretty intense I mean I guess the most intense moment uh to mention uh, as an idea it was when uh, I threatened to uh, to slit my own wrists in the art class because I was so uh, upset by everything that everyone was saying and the entire art class uh, cheered me on. Uh, making it a bit awkward for me because obviously it was a cry for help and I didn't actually want to do it so I kind of had to back out <laughs> in public. <sighs> awkward. So yeah, I feel ugly about myself um, and that's how I felt all through my teenage years. I mean, I, I did have girlfriends, but that, that, didn't, that didn't take away the ugliness I had inside myself that I felt about myself. And then I went to university. I met my uh, partner, uh, and we fell in love, and we had a lovely relationship, uh, you know, with ups and downs like any relationship, for 11 years. And uh, then uh, 11 years into that relationship, we decided to open up our relationships so that we could uh, sleep with other people uh, in an ethical way, everybody knowing, uh, and uh, that's what we did. So we opened up our relationship, and that's a a, a cool thing to open up your relationship, but also opening up the relationship for me was like opening up this Pandora's box of everything I'd felt when I was a teenager about feeling ugly because now I've got to face rejection again. So... Uh, that's what happened and you know my partner could find uh, people to sleep with when she wanted to and I uh, couldn't because uh, I'm not it's not such a great uh, opportunity for women uh, in some ways that they, they might want uh, casual sex but it's easier to hook up with someone who isn't already in a relationship um, and so it's hard for me to sort of like find people sort of like going through OkCupid just brought back that rejection feeling uh, that I just alluded to so um, we sort of had a think about what I could do and uh, I decided to go to a uh, swingers club, uh, a sex club to, to, because I figured that the women there would be down for casual sex and I was down for casual sex and that's, that's what I decided to do. So I looked up online, found a place uh, and uh, set off to go to the swingers club. Uh, And, uh, you know, on the way there, there was a misconnection and I sort of like uh, was racing to get the train. I jumped on the train in uh, in King's Cross and I got on the train and I was sweating and I was like, this does not feel sexy. I feel I'm sweating. I'm uh, I'm feeling ugly. Uh, I don't really know if the place is open from like 11 till five in the morning and I haven't got a way home. So uh, I have to stay the whole time, really. Uh, So um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking a risk here. And, uh, but then I sort of look over on the train and there's a woman on the other side of the train. I start thinking, mm, well, maybe she's going to this sex club. So uh, that could work out quite well. So that kind of made my, my feelings like slightly a bit more like positive in that moment. And then so I get to Alexandra Palace, uh, where the, the club is, and uh, I uh, go down a back alley. 
uh, and there's lots of uh, CCTV in that back alley, uh, reasonably, to protect the club and uh, the people inside it. Uh, but it's a slightly scary thing to go down a back alley uh, to a place that you've never sort of been before and sort of knock on a big metal door and an old man uh, looks out at you and says, have you got your reference number? And you go, uh, I've got my ID, but I haven't got my reference number. And he's like, well, you look like an honest guy to me, so you can come in. Uh, so I went into the sex club, and uh, it was a sex club. So uh, uh, that's what it was like. I mean, I guess I'll tell you what it's like as we're going around it now. So I meet the, uh, the concierge, who is, uh, well, she feels German to me, but I think she was Polish. Uh, she kind of had a, had, a, had a, she kind of, she was dressed like a kind of cross between a dominatrix and a blue coat. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, the people who run the sex club, uh, who were like a kind of a couple that were kind of a mix between EastEnders and Carry On, I guess. Uh, is, is, and uh, so I meet those people and the, 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 the waitresses who are behind the bar, uh, who, you know, are just in uh, bikinis and stuff. So uh, already I'm, I'm definitely in a sex club. And uh, so the concierge, she, uh, she shakes my hand and, and uh, I, sh- I shake it back and she says, You haven't got a very firm handshake. And I'm like, Okay. Uh, nice to meet you too. I actually think that my handshake is a perfectly reasonable amount of firmness. Uh, that's the firmness I'm comfortable with, actually. And I don't really see any reason why this is an issue. She says, oh, well, okay. And then she, t- she takes me around the sex club. Uh, at this moment, there's nobody else in the sex club apart from the staff and me. Uh, it's just a slight, a strange experience. So she, she sort of takes me around it, and it's kind of like a lot of different porn sets, but with nobody in them and worse lighting. Uh, and so, you know, there's a glory hole section, there's a, there's a few bed sections, there's all sorts of bits of the, of the club like that. There's a bit for people who are in, in couples to just go and be watched but not, be, not, not have anyone in, engage in the sex with them. And around all of each of the different sort of porn sets, there is a white line, and that's a very sensible white line uh, because that li- white line is about consent. You can't cross over into the sex that's happening unless all of the people in having that sex... Uh, say you can so you have to stay on the outside of that white line and when she's telling me this she's like you know looking at me like you're definitely going to be on the outside of this white line (laughs) and uh, you know she's sort of like she's very very people keep saying the word virgin as if I'm actually a virgin rather than this is just my first time at a sex club um, so it's so kind of getting humiliating and there's no other people. Uh, then, then some people start arriving, uh, men, uh, lots of other men uh, start arriving. And there's one man who, his, it's his first time too, so uh, the, the staff direct us to talk together and we talk about it and we're like, oh, we're probably not going to be uh, having any sex tonight. It's statistically very unlikely. We're going we're gonna to be reasonable about it. We both feel awkward. We had a kind of nice conversation. And I realised that the good thing is, I do feel calm because I can have conversations with people and we're allowed to talk about sex because this is a sex club. So I'm comfortable with that. But uh, um, still, there's no women. And uh, so that's a bit awkward. And then women start coming, but they're in couples. Uh, so uh, they, 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 that, that's, that's how it is, right? In the, in the kink community, I believe, and in the sex community, uh, there's just a lot more men who want sex uh, going to those places, it seems, than, than women, uh, which kind of reminded me of my experience uh, experiences on OkCupid uh, so uh, so then finally like a woman who is single comes to the club uh, and she kind of she looked like 
Miss Piggy, but when I say that, I mean in absolutely the best possible way, because Miss Piggy is fucking hot, and I refute anybody who says anything different. So that is how she, she that's kind of how she looked. She had a, a, she had blonde hair and, uh, and glasses, so that was different from Miss Piggy, the glasses bit. Um, but yeah, and we got into a conversation, and uh, she said, uh, so what kink brings you here? And I thought... Um, not, not really any kink, because I'm kind of pretty vanilla. I just kind of want to have sex with somebody. Um, yeah, that's what's brought me here. I've opened up my relationship, and I explained that to her. And she's like, okay, well, that's fine. And we got, we got into that, a big conversation, really. Like she said, the first time she'd had, had sex was uh, in a group sex situation. And uh, she, was a, she was American, and she... Uh, she, she it was 25, because that's something that happens to you in a sex club. You ask each other's ages a lot. Like in, in, you don't do that in normal conversation when you meet someone new, but you ask people's ages in a sex club because, you know, for obvious reasons. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, so we get, we get talking, and uh, so I, she said to... She, we sort of get into... I, I didn't really agree with her take on feminism, but I did appreciate it. What she said was... Uh, what she's, and I know that's an t- awkward thing for a man to say, but I think you'll see what I mean in a minute. She said uh, she thinks that basically men have it worse than women generally uh, because um, she can take the periods, the childbirth and the unequal pay if she can get free drinks and sh- shag anyone she likes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, fair enough. That's her, that's her take on it. I, I, I see it a little bit differently, but at the same time, that's a cool way of thinking, and I did, I did, I did relate, relate to that. You know, um, so so we get talking, and and she's sort of like she's not suggesting that we're going to get together. It's just a conversation. Um, and a guy called Dave arrives. I'm also called Dave, so there's two Daves and one girl talking here. Uh, two Daves, one cup uh, is what I want to say, but it doesn't really make any sense. But uh, uh, so yeah, and he's he's uh, 37 and he's uh, Jewish and he's, he's driven there, so he uh, he was he wasn't going to drink. And he was a really nice guy. He didn't like football. We really related to each other there. We started talking about how rubbish football is, which is my opinion, and I, I respect your opinions. Um, but uh, so, uh, so, yeah, and, and, and that sort of started to happen. They'd hooked up before, and they had a kind of pre-existing relationship. And so I sort of thought, oh, right, I see how this is going to go. You know, they're going to hook up, and, and I'm not going to hook up with them. But that's okay. You know, this is a new experience, and, you know, I wasn't expecting anything to happen. Um, but people keep arriving, and there's more and more men, but more and more people as well. But nobody's having sex. Uh, and then uh, just suddenly, all of a sudden, like a sixth sense almost comes across me and uh, Teddy, her name was, and uh, Dave. And we just sort of stand up and uh, go off to one of the, the porn-like sets and uh, start having a threesome. Uh, mostly directed by her, which was cool with me, uh, and a lot of fun. And I was kind of like really, really relaxed. And like, I'm, I was thinking, I'm having sex with a woman and another guy, and I'm not gay, but I don't uh, find this uncomfortable. Um, I don't find it uncomfortable to look at him having sex with her at all. I'm pretty into it. Um, and uh, I was, we were having sex, all three of us together, you know, so I guess I can kind of say I'm not 100% straight, uh, which is what the kids at school thought. Uh, so <laughs> we, we had a, a, a good time uh, there. And it was a sort of strange sort of moment because, you know, we're having sex and it's good sex, but there's lots of men in a big circle around us on the other side of the line wanking. Um, so that's a kind of strange experience. And, you know, all of my feelings about my body and the way I look, like, I feel like, like 
properly disgusted by my own body. But in that moment, I didn't, you know. And there's all of these guys wanking over my body. I guess I should have <laughs> felt disgusted. But for some reason, that was pretty validating, even though I'm sure they were probably looking at her more than me. Um, so, you know, that's how that went down. And then what it did is it sort of started the, started the whole club up, you know, because the first time someone has sex, that's, like, what everyone's waiting for. And so, like, everybody, it kind of felt like, wow, we're like, we're like DJs, like, bringing, the, bringing up the sexual atmosphere in this club. Um, and, uh, you know, so then we sort of uh, went out for a cigarette after that and uh, had, had a cigarette. And the, the guy that was also waiting with me at the beginning, he wasn't so chummy with me anymore. He was much more bitter and kind of, I'm a nice guy, um, which was a little bit kind of weird for me because I've never been the man that someone else, another man is jealous of, you know. So it was kind of validating but made me feel guilty for being validated by it. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that, so then we went back into the club and then the, the, the next thing I know, you know, we're, there's like a dance floor bit with a pole in the middle and it's not really a place where people have sex and there's sort of like tables where people are sitting in couples and talking. Um, but the next thing I know, I'm on the floor in the middle of the dance floor, Teddy's got a back against the pole and I'm going down on her and the whole room is like looking at me like doing this and like, like nobody's saying anything, they're just looking at me doing this and I just get really into going down on her because it was really good fun um, and you know, I, you, know, I, you know I can't really see what's going on and I sort of like get really into it and she comes like amazingly and like, this was quite pr- pretty cool as well because she said to me I don't normally come in group sex situations apart from that time when I, there were six guys uh, so I, I felt pretty good about this moment of like validation of like this whole room is looking at me getting this person off and like they're getting off on this and I, I don't know what's happened to me I am amazing um, <laughs> And, you know, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that was the kind of the, the big moment for me, the moment of validation was that moment. Um, but, you know, we did have sort of a lot more sex after that and a lot of other people got involved in it, and I was cool with that too. Um, but, 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 but that was basically how it went down. And then, like, I, at five in the morning, you know, we're all sort of talking and it's kind of calm and, you know, we're eating. Uh, they had uh, Swedish meatballs, which were excellent. In the, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, they did taste great. Um, and like Adele's playing on the music and we're all kind of like calm and you know Dave is going to give Teddy a lift back to his place because they're going to carry on having sex afterwards I think Um, and he says you know why don't I give you a lift home so we kind of go down and we we get into his car Uh, Teddy takes off her sort of polka dot uh, two piece lingerie and puts on her night clothes her pajamas, which I thought was an excellent move by her, uh, as we got into the car, and uh, he, you know, he drives me back to Asda in Leighton, uh, where he dropped me, uh, and he said, you know, mate, I've got this uh, chocolate cake here, you know, uh, I got given it at work, I don't really want it, do you want it? And Teddy grabbed it out of his hand and said, no, I want it, because she's that kind of girl, uh, and ate, ate the cake. Um, and he said, well, I, I've got these chocolates as well. You might as well have them. And I was like, well, I, don't really, I don't really need chocolates. I've had a very great night. And he was like, no, they're not for you. They're for your girlfriend. And I was like, that's really nice. That's a really beautiful moment. Like, this is, this is everything that I hope for about open relationships right here. And uh, so I took the chocolates. And they went back, you know, to watch uh, The Big Bang Theory. That's what they were going to watch. You know. <laughs> And I walked back uh, from, from the Asda uh, feeling, you know, 
good about myself and actually, like, I wasn't a horribly ugly and terrible person. I mean, I have, I did have a feeling at that moment that it, that, that sex clubs might be a little bit like gambling and I'd, I'd lucked out that time, um, but it, I might as easily be the guys wanking in the, in the darkness. Um, so I went back one other time and discovered I was right. I wasn't one of the guys wanking in the darkness. That is not really my scene. But I, uh, I did uh, realise that I had lucked out massively on my first, ti- first time. So I've, I learned from this whole experience that maybe, you know, it's good to quit while you're ahead in the sex club. But I also... <laughs> well, while you're giving head. Uh, but I also learned that... <laughs> that I am not ugly, which I believed in that moment... I find it hard to believe in this moment, so it's hard to say. But I'm going to try and say it proudly. But it's not going to go that proudly, but let's see. <laughs> that I am not ugly. <laughs> Thank you. Dave Vickering! And he also has a wonderfully firm handshake. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We got into a little discussion beforehand. I I also think Miss Piggy is hot. And a lot of people disagreed with us, but I I stuck in there. I was like, no, go with it. Like I I described once in a story uh, meeting a guy who I thought was was really really beautiful and sexy in a kind of an old way. And I said he he, he kind of looked like Yoda. And <laughs> My editor, the guy who edits the, the episodes, is like, you cannot say that if, if for nothing else because he's going to hear it. <laughs> 
But to me, Yoda is still kind of sexy. Um, all right, let me bring up our next storyteller. She, it was such a thrill to have her reach out to us. And there are so many different uh, storytelling shows that are happening here, especially Just Spark London itself has so much going on. And so it's a thrill to know that everything uh, is, is so exciting now over the pond as well. Uh, please welcome to the stage, Soraya Singh. So, um, my first time in the States, I flew out of London about six o'clock, um, arrived in the States at six o'clock, so I'd been up for about 24 hours at this point, and uh, rocked up at my friend Mark's place. And uh, he was really excited to see me and started talking away, um, all, of, all you know, just coming out with all the things that we should do. And then he's like, no, 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 you have a shower, freshen up, and then, and then I'll, you know, tell, tell you all about all the things you're going to do over the next four days. I'm on my way th- uh, through to New Zealand, by the way. And we're both, both of us are from New Zealand. And uh, so, shower sounds amazing. I have a shower, it's, it's amazing. And... Uh, then I um, put on some fresh clothes, and that's incredible after you've been in a plane for 12 hours. And uh, there's only one place in the whole apartment that has a mirror, so I'm straightening my hair in the sitting room. <laughs> and uh, Mark, Mark comes up to me, and he says, uh, oh, you've got to meet this person, and oh, we've totally got to have breakfast at this particular cafe, and I think my neighbour might be dead. And also, we've got to go to this bar- burger bar too. And I'm like, can you just back up? second there did you did you just say you think your neighbor might be dead and then the story comes out of of what happened while I was in the shower (laughs) so Mark's downstairs neighbors had come up and he refers to them as the stoner student filmmakers Um, and they had been trying to get hold of the landlord for a reason completely unrelated to what they mentioned to Mark which was that they'd noticed that the guy opposite Mark, who's upstairs from them, that his light in his apartment had been on for about four months. And no one had seen this guy, Richard, for about the same period of time, but they only really knew him to sort of say hi to in the, in the, in the corridor and that kind of thing. They didn't really know anything about him at all, other than that he was this guy who tended to disappear off the radar because his work had come round one time and uh, said, oh, that, you know, he hasn't been at work for three weeks, so do you guys know where he is? And it turned out that he was just in his apartment the whole time he just hadn't gone to work so he's, he's got this habit of disappearing off the radar so they kind of realised that they'd be able to see into this window where the light is on a bit better from Mark's landing and it's quite a small window, it's about this big but, and they can only just see onto the windowsill and on the windowsill they can see flies but not just any flies, they're like those really really big flies But there's no smell or anything like that, so this isn't necessarily instantly suspicious. And then they realise that they could go up onto the roof and maybe see a bit better. And this is where Mark's girlfriend Claire comes into play, because she's really tall. So she can kind of crane around the corner of the roof and see down into this window, but it's quite a distance, and it's a really small window. She thinks she sees what looks like a blood splatter on the wall, and maybe some knees sticking up in the bath, but it looks like a mannequin. She's really sure it can't be a person. And uh, so the stoner filmmaker students go downstairs and get their video camera. I'm still in the shower at this point. <laughs> Can't they, they, they bring it up onto the roof, tie a rope to it, 
and lower it down off the roof and take some film in this window and then bring it back up again. And basically they managed to confirm what, um, what, what Claire saw, which was knees sticking up in the bath that don't look real. They look like a mannequin and something that looks like a blood splatter on the wall. And you may be thinking, like, this is a bit naive. Why would anyone have, like, a mannequin in their bathtub and a blood splatter on the wall and it not be something extremely worrying? But I don't know if you've been to some apartments in San Francisco that kind of belong to the Burning Man crowd. (laughs) (laughs) The time that I was there, there was, like, um, I went to one place that was, like, kind of wall-to-wall animal skulls and another place that was, like, wall-to-wall silver-painted mannequins, like a 90s music video. It was amazing, but I can completely understand why they were I didn't understand at the time so when Mark was uh, telling this he explained about this I said look you're here on a work visa right and I think it's actually really seriously illegal if you think there might be a body somewhere and you don't report it but um Mark is extremely reluctant to get involved at all with the police from his personal experience and other sort of things that he's done. It's been a very, very bad situation whenever the police have been involved. So he's like, I've got to be really, really, really sure before I'm going to contact the police about anything. And Claire's kind of somewhere in the middle. She's like, yeah, I can understand that, but you really, you know, really, we probably should be. And I'm saying, you've got to call the police. So we're not really getting anywhere and making a decision. So we do what you know, you do when you don't know whether or not to report the body. And we went to a party. <laughs> it was one of these um, things that, that Mark had been hyping up just before he told me about this body. This, this great party over in Oakland. And this is where they had all the skulls lightning, <laughs> the whole house. Um, and I met all these really great Californian people who you can just talk to them about anything and they don't bat an eyelid. And this is really weird for me because I've been living in, in Britain for 10 years, but I'd actually got kind of used to it. Um, I find this thing, right, where... Um, conversations that I never imagined would be controversial are controversial here, you know. So saying to someone, hey, so what part of town do you live in? It's a little bit like saying, so what part of town do you live in so that I can just come around and stand outside your house and sigh? (laughs) But um, it wasn't like this at all at this party. Everyone was, you know, quite happy to engage in any sort of conversation whatsoever. So Mark and Claire and I were sort of raising this, this kind of what would you do scenario with people if, you know, um, there's, there's the flies but no smell and there's, you know, blood maybe, maybe a mannequin in the bath. And every single person we spoke to was like, I would have called the police like yesterday. Um, and after speaking to many, many people about this, um, Mark was finally convinced that this was something that he actually really had to do. And so when we finally got back to his apartment, it's about two in the morning and I've been up for... Yeah, getting on to 36 hours at this point. So if it wasn't already surreal, you know. Um, And he gets out a bottle of the best whiskey and we have a few shots so that he can um, steady his nerves in order to call the police because that's quite a big thing for him. And uh, he finally does it and uh, makes the 911 call and the... um, what do you call them? Dispatcher. The dispatcher says to him, you know, why do you think that there's a body in the next, next door apartment? And he's like, well, you know, the flies, the film with the blood and the knees sticking up in the bath. And then there's this silence on the other end. And then she said, this is priority number one. We are sending a unit around straight away. You'll have to be down on the street to meet them, please, sir. And so it's only about two or three minutes before uh, the police get there. And uh, so... Mark has to go down to the street and, and let them in. 
But this actually has nothing at all to do with Claire and I. We're not involved in any way, but we're kind of crazy rubberneckers. So (laughs) we get Mark's apartment door and we edge it open like about two inches. And she's a bit taller than me, but we're kind of... So I'm crouching underneath her and she's up here. So there's like these two sets of eyes kind of (laughs) peeking out the door, like some kind of weird Warner Brothers cartoon or something like that. But the police, to their credit, don't bat an eyelid. They must see this all the time as they come up. But they're kind of a bit of a motley crew. Like They all seem to be like really young, like they're all about 21 or something like that. And half of them are plain clothes. I'm not sure why you need plain clothes officers for this sort of situation. Um... But they, and they don't seem to know what they're doing. They're talking in numbers. They're saying things like, if this is a 791, we have to do a 323. And they ask Mark to show them you know, what, what, what roused his suspicions, and he shows them the flies and takes them up onto the ceiling. And they bang on the door, and they're calling out to this guy, Richard. They're like, Richard, are you in there? You, know, you can come out, Richard. You know? And there's nothing. Nothing's happening at all. Um, and eventually they decide that they're going to break the door down. Um, and it turns out the police in real life break doors down in different ways from how they do in the movies, right? So it's not this kind of like this manly forward kick, right? It's this kind of like like pissed off horse, right? <laughs> it's kind of backwards kick thing. And, <laughs> and it takes a few kicks to get the door down. Um, and there's, there's a like uh, splinters, little bits of wood just flying everywhere and it's the fourth kick that the door actually comes down and there's just a couple of seconds where I see into this guy's front hall and I see these posters on the wall in his front hall and there's like Lord of the Rings and um, like posters with dragons and stuff and World of Warcraft and I just had this sudden realisation that he could be anyone that I know you know, sudden sort of identification with who the type of person that he is. Um, But that doesn't last very long because we hear this coughing and this gagging from outside as the police are confronted with the smell and they're just bellowing from like, oh my God, the smell. Claire has this really sharp reaction and she slams the door closed so that none of the smell gets into into Mark's apartment, which is a real relief. Um, And uh, then the police are outside and um, they're, they're calling into this apartment you know, Richard, if you're in there, you can come out. You, you haven't done anything wrong. And they call this a few times, and then there's nothing. Um, and then they start sort of drawing lots as to who's going to go in, because none of them want to go in. And somehow it ends up being, like, the smallest, blondest lady <laughs> has to go in. And, um, and she's in there for a minute or so, and then she comes out, and she's white as a sheet. And she says, he's, he's like soup. He's melted into the bath. And, and there's a cat. Apparently it had got into some food or something like that, but apparently they don't live very long without water, so they probably didn't, didn't live very long. And at this stage, there's not really anything that, more that the police can do, so these young police officers kind of filter out, and then this older police officer comes in who's like a senior officer who asks Mark a lot of questions about, you know, um, do you know anything about this guy? No. Um, do you know his family? No. Do you know who his friends are? No. And um, they, you know, ends up declaring it not a crime scene, basically. And... Uh, this is, you know, so it's getting very small hours of the morning and this is not, this is not the end of the night because there's actually uh, a lot more people to come to the apartment. So the next people that come. And so basically what happens in the intervening time is that Mark comes back into the apartment and we have a few more shots of the, the whiskey and 
some for some reason we can't get drunk and these people kind of keep on coming along and there's like this um the photographers who photograph the whole scene and then the next guy is finally and we're sort of thinking about I hope that there's going to be someone to remove the body soon and and then this guy comes who removes the body but then he comes out having done this work and he comes out and he says no one told me about the cat I don't do cats (laughs) and Mark says you ladle human soup into body bags and you don't do cats. And this guy's like, no, you have to call animal control for that. (laughs) So then Mark has to call animal control and then we have to have more whiskey while we're waiting for them to show up. And uh, then they take the cat in this small body bag. And and then the very last people who come are the people that... um, seal up the apartment or they kind of take all these readings around the building and then they seal up the apartment with tape and they put this like almost like a warning on a cigarette packet it's like surgeon general sort of this is you know um don't go in here on pain of death kind of thing you know real dangerous stuff and so the rest of the holidays we're kind of going in and out you're sort of confronted with this biohazard scene across the hall but so at this point you know there's nobody else coming and we could sleep theoretically and um, I've been up at this point for well over 36 hours but somehow I'm not able to sleep and I doubt that Mark or Claire were able to sleep either and I guess like since that has happened I've been thinking a bit about you know those people that you know like Richard who have disappeared off the radar who deal with their depression in that kind of way that they totally remove themselves from life and that's really scary, the way that someone can just sort of take themselves aside and stare into that dark abyss alone. And you never know what to say because, you know, they're actually intentionally shutting you out. But I'm, I'm brought back to what the police said when they called into his apartment. Um, that whole sort of notion of... And I kind of wondered whether things might have been different if there'd been someone there to say that to him four months ago. It's all right. You can come out now. You haven't done anything wrong. Thank you. Soraya Singh! Uh, I just want to thank uh, Jessie Murphy for her wonderful violin playing. It's just so wonderful to have her. And also Joanna Yates uh, for helping us bring the show here to London, along with Dave Pickering. Uh, That is our show for tonight. Thank you so much. This has been such a thrill. You have been such a lovely audience. Everyone here has been so wonderful. Jesse, Joanna, Dave, all the storytellers. Thank you so much. I hope to be back soon, folks. Have a great night! Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.